Greetings from Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. My name is Father Martin Moran. I'm the university chaplain here at the Mount, and it's a great honor to welcome you to our continuing of Our Lady of Cabello apparition uh, uh, series. As you know, recently uh, we have a new uh, mosaic garden here to Our Lady Cabello, who was the first uh, apparitions that were approved in Africa uh, by the Vatican. And so today we're taking our dialogue and discussion a little further to talk about the Rwanda genocide. Welcome to Catholic Town, sponsored by the National Shrine Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes and Mount St. Mary's University. Catholic Town aims to highlight people, places, and movements that are spreading the kingdom of God in the historic town of Emmitsburg, Maryland, and beyond. Join us as we sit down with Catholic figures of all types, hear their stories, and get to the heart of what drives them. And at this time, I'd like to welcome my two co-hosts, Ifosa and also Shanaz, as they share a little bit of information about them being students here at Mount St. Mary's University. Hello, my name's Ifosa. I'm a sophomore at Mount St. Mary's University. I am a biology major and a French and chemistry minor. And I am from Laurel, Maryland. Hello everyone, my name is Shana Suma and I'm a senior here at the Mount. My major is conflict, peace, and social justice. And I'm double minoring in history and sociology. And I'm from Greenbelt, Maryland. And now at this time, Father, I'd like to introduce our two guest speakers, Professor A.B. and Professor Christensen, who would like to introduce themselves first. I'll go first. Okay, so thank you, Shanaz. Um, I am Dr. Cyrilene Marilyn Amwa Buampong. I am a Fulbright Scholar in Residence um, at the Mount in the fall and also in the spring. Um, I'm originally from the University of Ghana, and my speciality is in women's history. And I'm thankful to be here at the Mount. I'm especially thankful also for um, Father Marty's invitation to be part of this um, podcast, especially as a result of the warm welcome that I've had at Mount St. Mary's and also about the inclusive uh, definition that the Mount has had with reference to Black History Month and the expansion of it beyond um, considerations of the African diaspora to actually cover issues that are of concern to people on the African continent, especially the issue of the Rwandan genocide that Our Lady of Cabello foretold many years before. So I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is William Christensen. I am a professor in the um, Political Science and International Studies Department. I got my PhD from the University of South Carolina. This is my fourth semester at the Mount, and I would also like to thank our co-host today and Father Marty for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Christensen and Dr. Amoa Bongpong. The first question I want to ask is director to, directed to Dr. Christensen. So, Dr. Christensen, what is genocide? This is a, a really good question, right? And there's still debate in the field over exactly which events constitute genocide. Um, the, I would say the act, the, often the quote is, is that the evil has existed much longer than we've been able to define it. Um, for centuries, acts of genocide have occurred, but it was only really until 1944 that Polish lawyer Raphael Lemkin coined the term 
The Greek prefix genos, meaning race or tribe, is combined with the Latin suffix side, usually meaning killing. But the modern definition is much more expansive than this, uh, much more expansive than Lemkin's definition. The United Nations definition in the Convention of the Prevention and Punishment for the Crime of Genocide in Article 2 says that genocide is any of the following acts committed with deliberate intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And this includes killing members of the group, causing serious bodily harm or mentally harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions in life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or part. This can also include forced sterilization, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and also forcibly transferring the children of the group to another group. So um, you can see that the United Nations, and as, as we begin to understand genocide a bit more, we've adopted a more expansive understanding of it. Thank you, Dr. Christensen. My next question for you is, can you provide a brief background on the cause of the Rwandan genocide? This is a really good question. Um, and it's one that we cover extensively in my class. We, we spend nearly two weeks on the Rwandan genocide in my class alone. And I still like to tell my students that we barely scratched the surface of a lot of the events that were kind of culminating uh, several decades before the genocide occurs. I would put it to four key factors. So I like to get my students to think about some of these events as being multi-causal or being the product of multiple factors that coalesce or kind of come together uh, to increase the likelihood of genocide in a given state at a given time. Uh, first and foremost, I would argue that colonialism was a huge factor here. Um, that struggles for power, politics, um, economic scarcity, as well as the spread of fear and hate of the other within society. And this really starts in 1918 when the Belgians assume control of Rwanda from Germany. They continue to rule through a Tutsi monarchy because they perceived the Tutsi as more European due to their facial features. They were seen as lighter skinned and having facial features that were more similar to Europeans. So the Belgians put approximately 14% of the population in power in 1933, and they start mandating that everybody receives an identity card based off of Hutu or Tutsi ethnic identity. We then see rebellions. Uh, we see the Tutsi king toppled. Uh, we see that monarchy abolished. Rwanda eventually gains its independence from Belgium in 1962, and Hutu, uh, the, the Hutu population, uh, designates a president. Then we see uh, local militias form throughout the region in Uganda, the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. This eventually leads to a civil war in 1990. Um, so we can see this genocide also as the product is ongoing civil conflict and civil war. We see some progress in the early 90s. A new constitution is established, allowing for multiple political parties. But then we begin, we begin to see hate being spread on a daily basis. A radio station, the RTLM, uh, begins broadcasting and spreading hate against that Tutsi minority because they fear that the Tutsi is going to return to a position of power uh, as, they were, as they were subjected to for, for decades. Um, we then see in 1994 that, and this is kind of maybe the final turning point, that the Rwandan president that's produced by this new constitution is killed when his plane is shot out of the sky. And this really officially begins the Rwandan genocide as a Hutu extremist group, a paramilitary organization known as the Interahamwe, uh, or those who attack together, forms and begins killing their political opponents. So, you know, once again, just to summarize, I think it's a product of multiple things, but we do see that things like coffee prices, prices plummet a little bit uh, around five years before the decade, significantly affecting the Rwanda economy. We see some of the decisions of the colonial powers to, to, to pull out in the way in which they pulled out 
um, that affect this, but we also see a struggle for power um, as well as the kind of this continued spread of fear and hate of the other throughout throughout society prior to the genocide in 1994. So what were the conditions when the ki- killings finally ended? So in a little over, right around 100 days, 800,000 people were killed. Um, this is one of the more intense and hostile genocides that we've seen. But um, much like other genocide, this leads to absolute social destruction, um, devastation of, of society within Rwanda. Um, essentially, the, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, who had, who had fled during the genocide, reorganizes and comes back and takes power. They take the presidential palace, um, but they have to also think about the fact that nearly half the population is now either dead from genocide or they have fled to neighboring countries. So. Uh, we see that schools, hospitals, and government buildings are empty or destroyed. Uh, there is widespread fear, mistru- mistrust, and guilt, um, just really eroding the basic foundations of civil society. Uh, the Intera Hanway is driven into the, the DRC in Uganda, and it's not really until 1995 years later uh, that the new government that forms under the RPF is able to establish elections. So much like I think most genocides, um, it... The point is to destroy the fabric of society so that the the perpetrators can change it. And I think many would say that they did accomplish that goal, that um, this was an extremely devastating event. Can you speak on um, any reconciliation efforts once the killing stopped? Sure. So we do see eventually that there is an international criminal tribunal for Rwanda. And this is seen as one of the models of truth and reconciliation Um, throughout the world for how to handle genocide in the modern age. Um, So there were efforts to seek justice, but also there were efforts and significant progress in trying to reintegrate the perpetrators into society who were willing to publicly take accountability and and express regret for their crimes. Thank you. And my last question is, what is there to learn from this particular genocide? Okay, so let me take that. So... From this particular genocide, there are multiple lessons that those of us on the African continent um, got out of it. Coming from West Africa, uh, a continent that also has its fair share of um, conflicts, but not necessarily genocide. The Rwandan genocide clearly brought to mind that silence and indifference in the face of mass murder emboldens perpetrators and makes genocide possible. So for many African countries, the first step we started thinking about in preventing um, mass atrocities is to find ourselves in a state where we would not come up with excuses that would provide a safe haven for perpetration to continue in perpetuity. Then globally, with respect um, to most countries in the world, actually, the idea of the culpability that accompanied simply looking away was something that was very evident for everyone. And indeed, um, the UN report in 1999 made it very clear about the culpability of, um, of the global scene not to be able um, to step in early enough to um, bring an end to this. Now, for other African countries, Ghana specifically, we, we learned how effectively divisions can be constructed and then manipulated when we demonize the other. And that demonization creeps into the rhetoric that becomes part and parcel of our society. And so very quickly, many of the West African countries felt that in order to prevent 
a potential genocide because we equally have these ethnic divisions that exist in our societies as well, but that it was imperative that political will be at the forefront of preventing such ethnic conflicts manifesting itself in the way that um, it did in Rwanda. And in a way, West African countries tried to spearhead or or I would say we tried to sh- um, chaperone our conflict in such a way that they were supposed to be more ideologically based than ethnically based. That way we are discussing the issues at hand and not the ethnic identity of each other. That ultimately makes one person the demonized and the other person the defensive. Now, ultimately, interestingly, no matter how horrible the crime, one of the things that one gets out of this is the idea that um, forgiveness and redemption is possible. Especially as we see um, decades later that um, survivors have forgiven perpetrators and indeed perpetrators have sort of started learning to forgive themselves. And this this um, system of forgiveness through the Reconciliation Commission that was established that um, Professor Christensen so spoke about earlier sort of leads other African countries to understand how Rwanda ultimately transitioned from this crisis zone with global attention to a very successful country in Africa currently, one which many other African countries look up to in terms of their economic development. And then I would say, um, personally, um, my Catholic faith encourages me to recognize the importance that everyone should experience the grace of welcome. And coming together out of love can honestly enable us to listen to each other much better. I do believe that uh, Mount St. Mary students are really blessed in this regard, that you are here, you have an environment that can encourage growth in terms of growth in in grace, and that um, Our Lady of Cabello's um, teachings that grace can transcend sorrowful experiences and sort of yield joyful reconciliation. It's something that is possible that the Rwandan example has shown us and that other parts of Africa can tap into as well. Thank you very much. So, Professor Christensen, I don't know whether you have more reflections to add in terms of what we can learn. I just really um, wanted to echo a couple of things, but I think that you know when we try to learn from genocide, uh, we seek to identify things that are unique and things to make us comfortable and feel as if they they won't happen again. But the sad truth is that while there are unique things about every genocide, genocide isn't unique to any particular race or continent or place of the world or even time. Uh, the harder truth is to accept that genocide has all been too frequent in human history and especially frequent in the past century and a half. Like other genocides, Dr. A.B. mentioned this wonderfully, the perpetrators were killing, willing to kill their own family and friends. Many, including the international community, many powerful states throughout the world like the United States, simply stood by and let it happen, even though there was clear evidence that a genocide was unfolding actively in Rwanda. And I think it speaks to the lasting effects of colonialism and colonial projects that are so divisive in terms of racialized uh, hierarchies around the world. The Rwandan people, though, uh, I think serve as a model. Like others that have suffered for such atrocities, they've proven that the human species is extremely resilient. Um, They've produced an extremely diverse legislator after the genocide. 64% of the parliament are women, which is um, the highest percentage in the world. Um, They have rebuilt and developed a very strong educational system, which is a must for the society there. 60 plus percent of the population is under 24 years old as a result of this atrocity. 
Um, 90.6% of the population is enrolled in Rwanda's national health program. They have, a, they have a kind of a model health program, and they've seen an 85.3% drop in diseases like malaria over the past several years. They've experienced that drop between 2005 and 2011. As Dr. A.V. said, there's, they've experienced amazing growth. Um, from a political standpoint, um, the ICT, are the, the International Criminal for, Tribunal for Rwanda, was really the first of its kind to deliver verdicts against people responsible for genocide. I was also the first institution to recognize rape as a means of perpetrating genocide. So even though this was a devastating event, we can see that there is something to be learned in the Rwandan people, how they handled it and, and, and demonstrated resilience after these acts in many ways uh, have taught us a lot about how to rebuild society after these events. There has been significant pro- progress, um, but I would ask us not to think about this as inhumane. Um, oftentimes I think we like to think of genocide as something that's uh, against humanity or inhuman, but these were very much human beings that were the perpetrators of these events. Um, and I think Rwanda has, has done well to recognize that and work hard to reintegrate perpetrators back in. Again, uh, I, I want to thank my friends that have joined me today, my co-host, Ifosa and Shanice, and Professor A.B. and Professor Christensen. We are so blessed to continue this series of Our Lady of Cabello. As many of you remember, last spring we dedicated the Mosaic Garden and plaque of Our Lady of Cabello here on campus. It's located right outside of our Bradley Hall. And again, uh, we want to thank you for being with us today and wish you well. We look forward to our next uh, in the series of Our Lady of Cabello as we speak on the apparitions of Our Lady of Cabello, how these are accepted by the Vatican. And our guest uh, speakers will be uh, Father Monsignor Charles Mangan from our seminary and Father John Trujillo from our seminary. And again, thank you for being with us today and may God bless you with the great gift of peace, his love and his great uh, gift of joy. 